Um, we have been sort of focusing or trying to focus this semester's um, chapels not only on our overall fee, but also in reaching out to our mentors and what the mentoring relationship is all about and how we're all mentors. And, I mean, I'm finishing up here. i am almost finished my second year of, of um, mentored ministry. And it didn't really clue into me about the mentoring relationship until I was going over that lovely form we have to fill out for the BMSE. And um, there was a question on there that I really wasn't sure how to answer, and so I was discussing it. And it was about taking what you were, where you were two years ago and where are you now. And that's when it really, when I really started to think about that, where have I come in those two years from this to this, and how did I get there? And so much of that is because of my mentoring relationship. And so this is our first, I think, mentor that we've had to come in and preach. Is not just because he's my mentor, but who else can you go to a couple of days beforehand and say, any chance you can preach in chapel this week? And other than a slightly raised voice with, what? Then he sits down and pulls together a sermon and comes through for you. So... I am going to uh, ask Danny to come up and give the message to us. Well, thank you, Jennifer, and uh, thank you for the invitation to come and uh, to share with you this morning, no matter how long or short that came. I certainly uh, always appreciate the opportunity to share, and I do have to say, um, that uh, as a pastor, it is the, the rare privilege, I think, that I've had of watching somebody or move through the various stages of uh, faith development from first Sunday in church to the point where you're sitting in a, sem- in a seminary classroom with them and they're sitting on the cusp of launching into uh, Christian ministry themselves. And so I've appreciated um, getting to know Jennifer over the years and the relationship that we've developed in in that mentoring relationship. What I want to talk about uh, this morning from uh, the passage of Scripture we read is uh, the difficulty that we have sometimes as followers of Jesus uh, living Christianly in our culture. It's tough to live as a follower of Jesus in our culture. And it's not tough because we are overly persecuted for our faith by any means. It's tough because of the many temptations and opportunities that come our way every day to compromise the faith that we have that exists within the culture that we live in. The, The strong pull that we have to just sort of go with the flow of the culture that's all around us. We here eat, drink, breathe, Western, liberal, secular, relativistic, humanistic, naturalistic, materialistic, individualistic. (laughs) It worked in the car on the way up. (laughs) Postmodern culture. It's all around us. It's in what we watch, what we listen to. It's in our workplaces, where we shop, where we go to school. It's on our computers, in our homes, uh, in our churches, in our even in our Christian institutions of higher learning. 
It's here. We are fish swimming in a culture that at every turn beckons us to lay aside our commitment to Jesus and to just swim with the rest of the fish. Now, of course, that's not any great newsflash to any of us here this morning. Most of us serve in some capacity in church leadership. We're either on staff at a church or serving and uh, doing mentored ministry, or maybe we're deacons and now we're elders or youth leaders or choir leaders, as uh, Joey reminded me this morning that I needed to point that out. And we've watched with dismay as those of us who we have discipled and prayed for and labored on behalf of, those who we spent uh, countless hours helping to establish in the faith only to see them get sucked back into the vortex of our culture and to reemerge without any semblance of Christian faith at all. My wife Lisa served as a youth pastor in our church for a number of years early on in our ministry there and it broke our hearts time after time after time to see and to watch teens with whom she had spent countless hours helping to raise them up in the faith. Teens who gave every indication of having a passionate and vibrant faith just simply walk away from it all after even one semester in university and become every bit as much a son or daughter of our culture as many of their non-Christian peers around them. It's, it's clear to me that, that persevering in the faith as fish swimming in the water of our culture often at times against the current is an increasingly daunting task for many of the people sitting in the pews or in the chairs of our churches And this concerns me. But it concerns me even more that as I meet and as I talk with Christian leaders on a regular basis, I'm finding that we're not always doing so well at thriving as followers of Jesus in the midst of our culture either. That we are by no means immune from the faith-numbing aspects of the culture that we live in. You know, it's increasingly rare for me to hear from another Christian leader, it is well with my soul. I've watched with dismay at how potentially, uh, potently, men and women that I have looked up to and served alongside as Christian leaders throughout the years have been swept away by the current of culture we all live and breathe and are part of. Or or when they sought to stand up against the faith-eroding aspects of the culture that we live in and present a credible witness for Christ to their church or to the culture in general, I've also watched as all too often have they have been cannibalized from within, eaten alive by churches more concerned about whether their sexually promiscuous granddaughter can still get married at the front of the church because of the new church wedding policy than following Jesus. By some estimates, and I don't put a whole lot of stock in statistics, by some estimates, 50% of pastors who are into vocational ministry will no longer be there five years later. And only one in ten will actually retire as a vocational minister. Now we have to be realistic about our calling this morning. The reality is that this, this call... To, to Christian ministry that many of us have experienced in our lives, it is, by its very nature, hard at times. And we can't fluff over that fact. The fact that Jesus referred to following Him as 
picking up a cross might have tipped us off to the fact that it wasn't going to always be easy. I can think of a few other places where heaven and hell collide to such an extent as in the church. And, and guess who God has been so gracious to place right smack in the middle of all the fun? You and I. You know, it shouldn't surprise us when we build our house on a fault line that things get shaken up every now and again. Except we do get surprised. And we do get wounded, and we do get disillusioned. We do get hurt. And some of us, along the way, walk away from the call. And others of us simply walk away from faith altogether and start swimming as just another fish in our culture because it's easier that way. And I want us to think this morning about what it means to persevere as followers of Jesus and as Christian leaders in the midst of our culture and in the midst of the churches that God has called us to or will call us to in the future and how in fact we might actually thrive there in the midst of that calling and in the midst of the culture that God has placed us in. Peter, as he writes his letter, the letter of 1 Peter, he writes to Christians who find themselves socially and spiritually alienated from the culture around them. His original readers struggled at times to stay the course and to remain faithful to God in the midst of a culture that in many ways did not affirm or live by the same values and practices as they did. We get just a glimpse of what some of these practices were in verse 3 of the text that Jennifer read. Some of the practices that were common in the culture in which Peter's readers lived and that that they found themselves excluded from because of their Christian faith. Things such as debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Many Bible commentators think that this list of vices that Peter provides here are related to one another in that they're a part of the religious rituals of the worship in the society in which these Christians lived. So not only were these practices antithetical to the life of the Christian on their own, but the Christian's refusal to participate in them segregated them from the social fabric of the culture they're living in. These practices were integral to normal community life. And the non-participation by Peter's readers in the life of the community in these ways was essentially seen as antisocial behavior. As we see in verse 4, where we read, they're surprised that they do, you do not join them in their reckless wild living. They heap abuse on you. It's likely that the rest of society looked down upon these Christians essentially as sources of bad luck and trouble. It was thought that that civic peace, success in agriculture, freedom from natural disasters and so on depended on keeping the gods happy. And these obstinate Christians who refused to worship the gods in the prescribed manner would have been seen as inviting the wrath of the gods onto the rest of society. And so simply put, these Christians, because of their commitment to Christ and their refusal to swim with the way that the rest of the culture was swimming, they just didn't fit in. And because of their refusal to simply capitulate to the culture around them, these Christians found themselves ostracized, verbally abused, and looked down upon by the wider society, even as they sought to do good in their culture for God's glory. 
And Peter wants to encourage these Christians as he writes to them with two pieces of motivation and strength to continue to live faithfully for God in the present, in the midst of the places in which He's planted them. And I pray this morning that we too might find encouragement in these two pieces of motivation and strength that Peter offers to his readers as we seek to persevere in our own Christian walk and to give leadership to God's people. And so Peter's first word of motivation and strength is that we can persevere in the present because of Christ's example in the past. We read in verses 1 and 2, Therefore, since Christ suffered in His body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires but rather for the will of God. And so as we cast our eyes back this morning at the example of Jesus' life and and how it is that He endured when the pressure was on, well, what is it that we see? What we see is somebody who is fiercely committed to one thing above all others. We see the life of someone whose, whose greatest aim was to give his father glory through the way that he lived his life and to carry out his father's will at any cost. No amount of ridicule, suffering, trials, persecution, pressure, even death could cause him to waver from this goal. Jesus had a, a singular focus And Peter calls us to take a glance backward at the life that Jesus lived as an example and as an inspiration for living our lives faithfully today for the glory of God as well. You see, the reality is that that most of us will never be called upon to give our lives for what we believe. And most of us will never be imprisoned for our faith. And most of us will never be abused for following Jesus. In fact, the most that the majority of us will ever endure for our faith in Christ may be a snide word, maybe a bit of ridicule, maybe exclusion in some form or another, maybe a bad write-up in the local paper. Maybe a tense church business meeting, or two, or three, or four. Maybe an overlooked academic appointment. Maybe not being taken seriously by other academics. And Peter says to us, take a a gander backward and see all that our Lord went through. All that He suffered to be faithful to His Father, to bring glory to His Father's name. Look at all that Jesus went through to remain faithful to us so that He might bring salvation to all who would trust in Him. And then consider that anything else that we might endure for His sake is minor compared to what He went through for us in the sake of His Father's name. See, Jesus is the example that that Peter points us to this morning for what it means to persevere in the present. We're to arm ourselves, Peter says, with the same attitude that Jesus had in the face of suffering. And when we do that, Peter tells us, then it says something about us. Look at the end of verse 1 and all of verse 2. Because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. That's a rather odd and confusing statement that Peter makes here. 
He seems to be suggesting here that somehow, if we suffer in this life for our faith in Jesus, that we reach a point where we no longer sin. But I think we misunderstand Peter if that's the conclusion that we draw from what he says. What Peter seems to be saying is that that a Christian's willingness to suffer for persevering in the faith, whatever that might look like in our individual lives, is clear evidence that the Christian has made a clear break with sin. In other words, when, when what becomes most important in my life is faithfulness to God's will and and living for His glory rather than simply blending in with the world around me, even if it means suffering or discomfort or exclusion or ridicule or pressure, when I choose God over, over fitting in or pleasing my church board or being liked by everyone, then this is good evidence that I truly have made a commitment to follow Jesus, that I've made a clear break with my sinful past and am now intent on serving Christ in the present. And so my my willingness to persevere in my faith when the pressure is on, Peter is saying, is evidence of the genuineness of my faith. You see, few people are willing to endure suffering, ridicule, pressure, exclusion for something they really don't believe in. See, I'm not going to subject myself to any of that stuff if, if deep down this Jesus thing for me is just a load of crock. And so when the, when the pressure is on, if our faith is not authentic, if it's just lip service, then we'll cave quickly and the genuineness of our faith is shown for what it is. But on the other hand, if, if we truly treasure Jesus above all else, if, if He is our greatest joy, the most worthy thing in my life. And when the pressure comes, like a diamond that's being formed, and the pressure and the heat within the the earth, our faith is purified and refined as well. And so when Peter says, whoever suffers in the body is done with sin, what he's saying is that suffering for the name of Jesus reveals the true nature of our faith. But there's something else this morning that we see as we take a glance back at Jesus' legacy of faithfulness to the will of His Father when the pressure is on. And what we see is that Jesus never suffered alone. As Jesus sought to be faithful to the will of His Father, God the Father always remained faithful to Him. Jesus' strength for faithfulness and perseverance in the present was in the continual presence of His Father with Him and the unbroken fellowship that they shared with one another. And as God's daughters and sons, through faith in Jesus, God has promised to never leave us or forsake us. We have the assurance of His presence, His guidance, His help every step of the way. As as God was faithful to Jesus, He will be faithful to us. And so as we walk a different path from the culture around us, as we give leadership to churches that sometimes bite, as we seek to be faithful to God in our own homes, as we wrestle with perseverance when the pressure is on, we do not walk the journey alone. But we walk it with God our Father out in front, leading us the entire way. Remember the great promise of Psalm 23. Well, the psalmist writes this. He says, Even though I walk through the darkest valley, 
You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now this psalm reminds us that that it's down in the dark valley when when the pressure is on, when life is hard, when faith is a struggle, when God's presence is also most real. It's down there in the valley where we most readily experience the comforting rod and staff of our God. It's down there in the valley that God says He sets up a feast for us while our enemies look on. It's down there in the valley where God anoints our head with oil and reminds us that we are set apart, declared holy by Him and consecrated to His service. It's down there in the valley where where that empty cup of faith that we've been carrying around starts to bubble up and then overflow. And it's down there in the valley where we are again assured the goodness and the mercy of our God will be with us all the days of our lives. Now we'll do anything to avoid being down there in the valley. But God says to us, when that's the pathway that life takes us on, I'll be down there waiting and I'll be with you every step of the way. So how do we persevere in faith in the present? First of all, we persevere in faith in the present by looking to the example of Jesus in the past. There's another source of motivation and strength that Peter gives us in the rest of this text for persevering in the present. And that is that we persevere in faith in the present by trusting in God's promises for the future. See, Peter reminds his readers in verses 5 and 6 that as followers of Jesus, future hope belongs to them. We read, but they will have to give an account, speaking of those who are harassing them, but they will have to give an account to Him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the Gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so they may be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the Spirit. And so Peter assures his readers that those in their society who are the source of their suffering will one day give an account for it. That they will not escape from the judgment throne of God. But on the other hand, that Peter also assures his readers that as followers of Jesus there is great hope. In that they have heard and heeded the gospel and will now be given the gift of eternal life with God. Peter wants his readers and he wants us this morning to understand that momentary suffering for faithfulness, whatever that may look like in our lives, enduring while the pressure is on for following Jesus, is better by far than eternal suffering for evil. He wants to assure us that our momentary suffering as His followers, will eventually give way to eternal joy. Our future hope as followers of Jesus is great motivation for perseverance in the present. Now, I don't know your circumstances this morning, the struggles in your ministry, home life, personal life, 
places where the pressure may be on and where you may be struggling to persevere in the faith. But Peter shares with us one of the great promises and hopes of our faith, and that is that this world that we are experiencing right now is not all that there is. Whatever we endure here on earth because of faith in Jesus pales in comparison to the great hope that we have in Him. And as we take our final breath, we shall experience the glorious reception in His kingdom as we cross over that threshold into new life. Present faithfulness assures us a future hope. No matter how tough a road it is as we struggle to boldly and passionately live for Jesus in the here and now, this life is extremely short when compared to the life that we will live in eternity. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 2.9 that no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the human heart conceived what God has prepared for those who love Him. And so, in light of our eternal hope in Jesus, that ornery old board member don't seem that big. And in light of our eternal hope, our struggle in perseverance in a culture that is not always that affirming of Christian faith does not seem that arduous. In light of our eternal hope, any of our momentary trials, pressures, or sufferings pale in comparison. So friends, let us not give up. But instead, may we ever more diligently fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. And so today as we look back at the example of our Lord Jesus, we we see that for each one of us who seeks to walk the road of perseverance and faithfulness in the present, that indeed as we swim against the flow of our culture, as we provide Christian leadership in a cultural climate such as this, we're guaranteed that at times the pressure will be on because of our faith. Jesus suffered because He was faithful and in some manner we should expect no less and yet as we walk that road of faithfulness like Jesus, we are guaranteed the comforting, guiding, strengthening presence of God with us every step of the way. And as we cast a glance up ahead and we take heart because what we see is that future hope is guaranteed. And so we we find great hope in the future promises of God for us. And therefore, looking both backwards at Jesus' example and forwards to God's promises, we can persevere and live faithfully for God in the present, come what may. We can live boldly in the present, unashamed of the Gospel and unashamed of Jesus. You know, the famous quote from missionary and a Christian martyr, Jim Elliott, who was killed in the jungles of Ecuador, the tribe he was seeking to reach for Christ, seems to me an appropriate way to sum up this passage in 1 Peter. Many of you know it well, but he wrote in his journal that he is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And so truly then, as followers of Jesus, we can live faithfully in the present because of Christ's example in the past and God's promises for the future. Father, we thank You. We thank You for Your faithfulness. As we look back over our lives, we can see that You have been faithful. We thank You for the example of Your Son Jesus that You have given to us. 
that, Father, as we, we look at Him and we see Your faithfulness to Him, that, oh God, that we can persevere. And we thank You for Your great promises, oh God, for our future. That anything that we may experience here, either at the hands of other Christians in the churches that we serve or in the culture that You've placed us in, is momentary compared to the eternal joy that we have promised to us in Christ. And so, Father, I pray that where we may be struggling with perseverance this morning, that You would shore us up, O God, that You would give us courage and strength and boldness, and, uh, Lord, that You would send us back out into the call that You have placed upon us, that we would live faithfully for You. I pray this in Jesus' name.